When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Feminism, 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 feminism ruins everything. It's a feminist podcast. Hello and welcome to Feminism Ruins Everything. We are the feminist podcast where we give critiques to movies, musicals, and pop culture phenomena and potentially ruin them. Potentially. We would like to acknowledge that we are recording this episode on stolen Ghana land. Uh, We would like to pay our respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Today, I am very excited because (laughs) we are going to be picking apart a musical that is very, very dear to me. You've wanted to do this episode for a while. I have, and Ellis keeps being like, no, man, we've got to space it out with movies for the non-musical nerds. (laughs) Ellis is the voice of reason. I'm like, let me talk about Little Shop of Horrors. (laughs) And he's finally... Agreed. <laughs> I've relented. You've worn me down. <laughs> Which, like, I'm surprised that I, I've I, I've put up so much resistance because I love Little Shop of Horrors right? as well. It's so good, and I'm so excited to talk about it. There, there are three musicals that I refer to as my favorite musical, and this is one of them. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what the other two are because we'll get to them. I love Little Shop. It's the only musical I've ever done twice. Ooh, okay. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> little fun fact. Little fun there. fact. I like that I deemed my own fact interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a fact that you will appreciate. Um, first time I did it, I was um, at university in the States mm-hmm. and I played Audrey, which was terrifying because I was the only non American in the cast and I had to put on a convincing American <laughs> accent. But fortunately, it was like a character voice, so I, yeah, I so got away fine. with it. Um, Can you give us like, some of your character voice? Seymour. Uh, I can't remember any of my lines. Um, oh, it's just a daydream of mine. A little development I dream of just off the interstate. Oh, cute. I, oh, it's not that good. I've kind of lost it. <laughs> but it was enough of a character voice that I... There were like people in the audience that didn't realize I was Australian. I was oh, like, phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then the second time I did it, I musically directed it for Adelaide Theatre Academy in Incredible. 2018. Wonderful. Yeah. I freaking love this show. But... It's a real good show. There are some things, it does not hold up in some regards from a feminist standpoint. <laughs> I think we will discover, but that's okay. We can recognize that things have problematic elements and still love them. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Little Shop of Horrors, the musical, is based on, I think it's a, a film from the from 1960. They made it into a musical uh, in 1982 with, uh, lyrics and book by Howard Ashman and the music by Alan Menken. Yes, what a dream team! They are some of the best composers ever. Mm. Like they, they are a dream team. They, they've written like in the kind of heyday of like eighties, nineties, early two thousands Disney. They were the go to Disney composers. So they wrote like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. They worked. To, they started on Aladdin together, but then Howard Ashman unfortunately passed away. Oh. But then Alan Menken did everything from that. He, he finished Aladdin. He skipped Lion King, understandably, because he was mourning the loss of his partner. Mm. Um, uh, his, his music 
partner. Uh, also, like, if you've got Elton John on the phone being like, Elton, do you want to do you want to write this show for us? So, yeah, you should be you'd fine. You'd be like, Alan, Alan, you can sit this one. Right, thank you. <laughs> but then, like, Pocahontas, Mulan, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, I thought Pocahontas I was... Tangled. Oh, no, Pocahontas was Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. Yeah, Stephen Schwartz what came in as the lyricist. Alan, so Alan Menken is still, like, working today. He and Lin-Manuel Miranda are working on a live-action adaptation of Little, Little Mermaid. That's, what? that's coming or was supposedly coming up. Sick. Yeah. So, oh, that was the one where they cast a black woman as Ariel, and everyone kicked up a fuss, and it was bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Oh, I recall. I recall. <laughs> so, so the, like they are hot take. Mermaids are fictional creatures. <laughs> they can be any race. <laughs> that's my two cents worth. Uh, but so, so the these are some incredibly well respected and highly lauded uh, composers. There's this, there's this YouTube video uh, that I would highly recommend everyone go and watch, which is Alan Menken just performing a medley of all of his hits. <gasps> it's so good. And it's like 10 minutes long. Oh, sounds good. And it's really wholesome. <laughs> like, he's not a strong singer and you don't care. And you're like, oh, damn, he wrote that. Oh, and he wrote that. Oh, God, he's good. <laughs> go watch it. It's really good. Uh so they wrote the musical, and it was turned into a movie in 1986, and that has uh, Rick Moranis and Steve Martin and Ellen Green, who oh. originated the role off Broadway what a dream as fan. well. Uh, and if you don't know the story, it's essentially about uh, Seymour is uh, he a florist. He's a florist. Uh, he's down on his luck. They're in Skid Row. It's the the worst part of town, and they're all trying to get out of it. And he suddenly discovers this strange and interesting looking plant that, uh, turns out, feeds on human blood and convinces him that he uh, the plant can bring fortune and fame if Seymour starts feeding it meat, human meat. Uh, and, and he tries to take over the world. So that's kind of the, the story. And the endings are different in the musical and mm. the movie. The musical has an everyone dies and the plant takes over the world ending. And the movie has uh, a big fight scene between the plant and Seymour and Seymour kills it and he and Audrey live happily ever after. So very different ways. uh, But that's that's a very quick recap of the movie. Mm. Now you're informed. Before we get into our discussion, little bit of Little Shop of Horrors homework for you. Mm. I want everybody to pause this podcast and go to YouTube. But like, come back, please. Like, come back. Go to YouTube (laughs) And Google suddenly Seymour, MJ Rodriguez, and George Salazar. They performed, uh, they did a production uh, of, of the show together. They performed that on The Late Late Show with James Corden. It is, in my opinion, the definitive version of that song. So good. And I just want people to listen to it. It is so good and so beautiful and completely recontextualizes mm. what is a, a Broadway standard into something new and beautiful yeah so please go watch that okay now let's get into some discussion (laughs) so there are in in the core cast at least you've got four female characters Mm -hmm. in this show so you have audrey who is seymour's love interest Mm -hmm. she uh she works in the florist uh which is called mushnick skid row florist Mm -hmm. which later becomes mushnick and son when mushnick the owner adopts seymour uh, that only happens in the musical. It doesn't happen yeah, in the movie. Yeah, it doesn't happen in the movie. Bit of a random subplot, but leads to a really good song. <laughs> Worth it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Audrey is uh, 
at least in Act One, in a relationship with a with an abusive, sadistic dentist boyfriend mm-hmm. whose name is Doctor Oren Scrivello, DDS. DDS. It's very important. Very important. And then, in addition to Audrey, you've got the three um, urchin characters. Yeah. Um, who I think their names are Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon, which is sort of like a nod to the girl groups of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're pretty much like a Greek chorus. Yeah. So they sing sick three-part harmonies oh, it's throughout the entire show. Uh, but they, they, are kind of, they are more functional than characterized. Yeah. Like they have some scenes where they interact with the other characters like in the scene, but for the most part, they're a Greek chorus kind of embellishing the yeah, action around they're them. they're narrators. And, yeah. and they're very... Uh, omnipresent. Yeah. Um, because they like narrate stuff that Seymour was doing privately. Like they, part of you is like, oh, are they a figment of his imagination? Or <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just really reading into that. They're just a narrative device. They're a narrative device. So really, the only woman who is a character within the piece is Audrey. Mm. Um, and because of the way she is written, a lot of her interactions and motivations are centered around a man. Whether it's the man that she is currently with, the abusive dentist, or the man she aspires to be with, which is Seymour. Mm. So Audrey is interesting, I think, because to some degree, I think she can be read as standing for a couple of like quite feminist ideas or at least um, feminist critiques um, being that she is in an abusive partnership. We're going to go into that in a little bit more depth later depth later on and we'll give a trigger warning when we talk about that specifically. Um, but yeah, she is in this abusive domestic relationship. She also um, sings this song, Somewhere That's Green, which very much can be read, I think, I will argue, as um, a critique of, you know, the the 60s housewives, like, that's all you're going to become in your life. You're going to be in service to a man and your family. Yeah. Um, but we don't know much about her other than her relationship with the men in her life. And that seems to be very defining of who she is. Mm. That and the fact that it's alluded to the fact that she was, like, not a sex worker, but like an exotic dancer. Yeah. Inverted comments. Like the, in the preamble to Suddenly Seymour, she kind of yeah. says that she worked at a place called The Gutter. Mm. And it was, she, she wore revealing outfits and that's where she met her abusive dentist boyfriend. Mm. So I think there is an argument that every character in this show, like including the male characters too, are very much stereotypes and archetypes. Yeah. So Audrey kind of stands for the the very stereotypical, I hate this and I'm going to dive into it in a second, but like the dumb blonde character. Um, Seymour is sort of like the down on his luck, hopeless romantic, um, always like just a bit of a dork. And then like Mushnik is like the stereotypical old Jewish man. Yeah. And so, like, there are a lot of archetypes in the show, but I think that some of the other characters at least get fleshed out a little bit further than those archetypes, and I'm not sure that Audrey does. 
Yeah, it's. I think the main point of contention in my head is the somewhere that's green sequence, which we will discuss uh, in a little bit, uh, where it feels like it is satirical and then doesn't really do much more with it. Mm. It's like, okay, we've done our bit of satire, we've sent up this whole institution, and now we're going to move along with our plot. Yeah, like you're you're not going to get any more development other than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, really hate the (laughs) dumb blonde trope thing, Um, mostly because the way that I read it and the way that I... um, deconstruct it is that blondness through a lot of like recent western history at least has been kind of um associated with idealistic feminine beauty Mm -hmm. which is like problematic in its own regard like that's very you know white white supremacist supremacist as well um but yeah there's this um trend that um, blondness is associated with idyllic feminine beauty. And... Like, one of the biggest sex symbols of the last century is Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Who is the archetypal blonde beauty mm. figurehead. Yeah. And so the way that I read the dumb blonde trope is that if somebody is attractive and someone fulfills... Um, you know, stereotypical or like conventionally attractive. Um, if some if somebody is conventionally attractive, um, and a blondness is a part of that, then you're going to write off their intellect. Mm-hmm. That you know, if somebody is nice to look at, that's that's it. Thank you. You've served your purpose. Uh, specifically, women. Um, yeah. like, you can't be pretty and smart. Absolutely not. And if you're not, we don't care because it's more important than you're attractive. Yeah. It's more important that you're attractive than the fact that you have any intelligence. Like, yes. that is what the dumb blonde stereotype, that's the message it sends me. <laughs> and I hate it. Not just as a blonde person. But also, like, mm-hmm. this is highlights. I'm not actually heaps <laughs> blonde. It's dark blonde at a stretch. Even so. <laughs> Even so. Like, but, like, this issue was already, like, confronted and critiqued perfectly by legally blonde <laughs> so like yeah it, it, it's it's such a it's such an outdated stereotype and it's such a such a damaging one and a disparaging one yeah. and so like just please could we like not do it anymore and i get that it, it would have been so fine if you'd been like, okay, we're going to set this up to be a dumb blonde stereotype, but then give her so much more of a character arc or so much more depth than that initial um, stereotype or that initial expectation would have you expect. Expectation, go figure. But I don't think it does that. No, it doesn't really... No, it, it feels like... Audrey, in particular, is the one character who is kind of set up as a stereotype or an archetype. And, and fulfills it. And fulfills it, and yeah. doesn't really go beyond that yeah. in any way. Um, which is a shame. Yeah. Still a great role. <laughs> like, still yeah. very fun to play. Still very 
good scene. But just in terms yeah. of the representation of women, not amazing. Not amazing. Uh, let's talk about her big number. Yes. Uh, so in Act 1, Audrey essentially has... She has an I Want song. Yeah. And she tells the, the urchins and the audience what it is that she wants. And what she dreams of and what she aspires to is this kind of like idyllic, very stereotypical, mm. very late 50s, early 60s American housewife dream. Yeah. White picket fence. Yeah. Uh, Not even. A fence of real chain link. Chain link. <laughs> like really, really ordinary stereotypical stuff and the way it's presented particularly in the film is really uh satirical it's Mm. a send-up it's it's a group of people in the 80s looking back on what was idealized at that time and going this is actually really silly and like this is what we want we want to buy furniture and then wrap it in plastic (laughs) so that we don't actually use it yeah. And, like, we dream of Tupperware parties and, and like... And, like, <laughs> um, those, like, alfoil prepackaged dinners. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's, it's a really, it's a really, like, it's a beautiful song and a really funny sequence in the, the film. And I think it says something that this is what her dream is. And I think it ties into the fact that she has such a low opinion of herself Mm. that her biggest fantasy is something really quite ordinary and mundane. Yeah. And I think that's really good satire. Yeah. But it then doesn't really do much beyond that. Yeah. What, What I read into this song and this sequence is that, um, it's almost satirical of a society um specifically like 60s middle class america Mm -hmm. uh it's satirical of a society where that is the best thing that a woman can dream for herself yeah like being being a pleasant docile housewife and all of the beautiful domestic pleasantries that come with that um looking like betty crocker and yeah exactly this plastic car and the furniture. <laughs> it's such a good song. Um, and so to some degree, I think if you really read into it, that's where the comedy comes from. It's it's the fact that it's so... What she's dreaming about is so uninteresting. <laughs> like and, and so outdated. Yeah. Like, like I think my favourite lyric in the number is, we'll snuggle watching Lucy on a, a big... big enormous 12 inch screen which only gets funnier the yeah. further away from <laughs> the, the 60s bigger we our get. TVs become. Yeah. yeah. And and it's like it's so and this was like them looking back from it was written in the 80s. Yeah. So they're looking back on that and already they're pointing out the kind of ridiculousness of mm. of that notion and that only kind of grows and grows and grows yeah. the further we get away from the time it was written. But I think there are multiple takeaways from this song that I think intentionally or whether they're intended to be there or not are good. Yeah. A being that Audrey has such a low opinion of herself and believes she deserves so little that her absolute pipe dream is something quite mundane. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that it's a send up of how little a woman in the sixties could 
aspire to. And how outdated those mm. aspirations are. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that those notions are really taken much further outside of this song. No. And that's that's a shame because I think that there could have been... Like, this is kind of the height of satire in mm-hmm. this show and or movie. And I think that there could have been much more pointed commentary throughout. Yeah. But it kind of only happens here. And then it makes me think that because it's isolated to this one number that what we're reading into it wasn't necessarily intended and it's more just meant to be funny. I I think that the number has to have been written satirically. Oh, yeah, yeah, and 100%. Like, like, but what I'm saying is that whether that was... It was written satirically to be a comment on, um, you know, 60s housewife culture or whether it was written satirically to just be funny mm. and pack a comedic punch. I think it could be both. It's just it feels like they didn't have any interest in continuing that idea yeah. further. Because, like, the end of... Like, Audrey's journey is that she ends an abusive relationship and starts a seemingly healthy one with the quote-unquote nice guy Seymour. Yeah. And that's kind of... And then in one version, she dies. And in another <laughs> version, uh, she and Seymour literally go to her dream house. And it ends with them running into the the house somewhere that's green. So it's like, it doesn't really... On one hand, I mean, like, this, it's a tragedy and it's almost like it didn't matter. And on the other hand, they're like, actually, no, it is good, this kind of dream. Because mm. aren't they happy now yeah. in their place? So it's like, yeah. yeah, it just doesn't feel like a... I, yeah. I also... I prefer the musical ending, which is oh. where the plant kills them and then takes over the world. Yes, Way such back. a better ending. Um, but if you don't have that ending, then there's no Somewhere That's Green reprise, <laughs> which does literally my favourite thing. I think I have said that another thing is my favourite music theatre trope, which is where they take they have like Act 1 finale as a medley of all the songs in Act 1. Yeah, I lied. This is my favourite music theatre trope, where they reprise something... And a lyric that was used metaphorically is used literally. <laughs> it's my favorite thing in the world because she sings about the fact that she's going to be eaten by the plant and she'll become a part of the plant um, and she'll be in the leaves and in its fronds. She will literally be somewhere that's green because the plant is green. And it's so good and it's such a good reprise. And if you don't have that ending where she dies, then you don't get that. Then you don't get that reprise and you don't get that great flip of like new meaning of the lyrics (laughs) i think you miss out on a lot when you change the ending and the plant dies yeah like it 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 kind of like i feel like it misses the point of of why you were there yeah it's i i think it is a typical like tragic comedy yes and if it doesn't have a tragic ending it's kind of like ah yeah it's, it it just falls a bit flat and is a bit... Yeah, oh, we, okay. we knew that like all roads led to this. All roads led to a bad, like tragic ending. Yeah. You kind of need it. <laughs> oh, and also the fact that like so many of your characters kind of do dubious things, particularly Seymour. Oh, yeah. And so for him to kind of be rewarded at the end... Yeah. Uh, is, ...is very unfortunate. Yeah, uh, it's like, congratulations, you... Killed people and fed them to a man-eating plant. Here's a nice house. <laughs> and a wife and the kids and yeah. the dog. And, yeah, so... Your dreams come true by committing murder. And your dreams come true. <laughs> um, let's move on to 
the other main feminist talking point of the film, and that is regarding the abusive relationship between Audrey and Oren. Uh, so uh, just a trigger warning here, we are going to be discussing abusive relationships and dynamics. Uh, we'll put a timestamp in the description so you can skip this bit if you so wish. Uh, let's talk about Oren. Oren Scrivello. He's DDS. a monster. Yeah. He uh, is a dentist because his mother took one look at him and said, you're sadistic, you'll enjoy inflicting pain on people. Be a dentist, which is just a, a hilarious premise to it's, me. <laughs> it's such, like his introductory song, like the reveal where he like he comes in and he's like on a leather jacket and like in the film he's on a motorbike <laughs> and he like walks into the place and just like rips it all off. And he's like, I am a dentist. I am a dentist. And it's such such a funny reveal. You'll be a dentist. That's the outro part. <laughs> and then the um in the film, Steve Martin plays the dentist, and he's going through literally just like physically abusing everyone he passes in the most over-the-top hysterical way. Like there's a point where a little girl has a doll and he just rips its head <laughs> off and throws it at her. And like people are like clinging to the ceiling to try and not have to suffer from him. So it's like, it's, it's a really funny over the top bit. Mm. But that is also coupled with the fact that his relationship with Audrey is very quickly demonstrated to be uh, an abusive one, both physically and yeah. verbally. So really his character's role in the show is to demonstrate somebody that is so morally reprehensible that he's kind of like a gateway murder yeah. for Seymour when he starts having to feed people to this plant that um, he's like, oh, well, I'll just kill somebody who's completely evil. Mm -hmm. And we see that in this character who is a sadist and a domestic abuser, basically. Yeah. Um, but... I think that as a result of that, um, I don't think that the the show and this character and this relationship between Oren and Audrey really does justice to domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So we see um, we see like literal acts of violence against her, like. Um, they're going on their date night and then they come back on stage and he's like, Jesus Christ, who forgets a friggin' sweater, you dumb slut? Something to that effect, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And then literally hits her across the face. and In in front of Seymour and mm, the plant. And from the get-go, like the first time you ever see Audrey, she's got a black eye, she's got her arm in a sling, mm -hmm. she's been beaten up. And you can tell by inference that that's from this character. Um, so... We do see that this is a very abusive relationship and every time we see them together, there's like the verbal abuse, there's the instance mm -hmm. of physical abuse. Um, but the reason I don't think it does service to bringing attention to and um, giving enough weight to the issue of domestic violence is the fact that he's portrayed as a sadist. Like, he literally sings that. Like, yeah. He so does she. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, dating a semi-sadist. Th there's like no question that mm. he is a violent person yeah. and that he enjoys it. He and... gets off on the pain he inflicts. Exactly. Um, and so the reason that I think that that does a disservice to the issue of domestic violence is the fact that most people who are violent towards their intimate domestic partner 
come across as normal people in real life. Mm-hmm. Like these are average guys on the most part. I'll go into that in a second. But these are average men who behind closed doors um, are abusive and manipulative. Like it's not always physical. Um, but then to the rest of the world come across as unassuming and um, like decent people. And also, yeah, like literally the fact that he hits her with witnesses around kind of goes against what we know about domestic abuse, which is that it often happens behind closed doors and without other people being aware of it. Yeah. And and you can make the argument that like nothing in this show is done subtly. No. Everything's painted with a really broad stroke. Yeah, it's very and, stylized. And Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. They, they very deliberately made Oren a monster so that you as the audience can go actually yeah I can understand why we're going to kill him now. Mm. Like the moment that he becomes irredeemable Oren becomes irredeemable to both Seymour and the audience is when we see him physically assault Audrey. Yeah like the plant whose name is Audrey too mm-hmm. um, goes like oh a lot of folks deserve to die. Yeah wait a minute I don't know anyone who deserves to be fed to a hungry plant. Um, and then he's like, don't you? Being, being the, the plant, obviously, says that. Um, <laughs> and, and then, then the we see happens. the sequence where yeah. he's literally physically violent towards Audrey. Um, so, yeah, nothing subtle about this show. But it, it, it does do a bit of a disservice. Um, like, it, it, if somebody is kind of watching that mm. and thinking, well, how do I look out for signs yeah. of domestic abuse? Oh, I'll see it. Yeah. I'll pick it up. <laughs> He'll sing a very catchy song about how much he likes him. Hurting people. Yeah. That's not true. Um, but yeah, it's it's the fact that he hits Audrey that Seymour was like, okay, yeah, he's a bad dude. Yeah. He can be fed to a hungry man eating plant. One thing that um, I learned very recently is that there was a cut song from the show called The Worse He Treats Me. And there was mm. a demo version of it on one of the the Broadway revival soundtracks. I think how it was I think Alan Lincoln. Carrie Butler. Yeah, maybe. Soundtrack. The, the Hunter Foster Carrie Butler revival yes. was on that soundtrack, yeah. Um, and it was a song that was cut from the show, uh, which is essentially about Audrey singing about why she is staying with her abusive partner. And that is kind of treated a bit like a joke. Mm. And it was cut... Good call. Very good call to cut it. And I think it was cut because they felt that it was poor taste. Yeah, and that was probably uh, correct. 
Okay, so the lyrics to that song are the opening verse is the worse he treats me, the more he loves me. It sounds unusual, I know, but when he hurts me, that's how he tells me that he would never let me go. Very good decision for them to cut it, but it's clear that they were trying to come at it in like a how can we turn domestic violence into Mm. a gag because this is a comedy and we should be writing jokes about things. So, again, very good decision for them to cut it, but they're still kind of like they include it as a cut song on the cast album. So it's still kind of floating around out there as opposed to them going, no, we made a mistake Mm. and shouldn't, shouldn't be flaunting this around. I mean, I suppose that it does to some degree, I don't, I don't think it does it particularly successfully, but I think to some degree it is trying to demonstrate that people who are victims of domestic abuse do still have a pull to their abuser and mm-hmm. that there is a level of... Um, love and forgiveness there that shouldn't be there obviously but that that's a that's quite characteristic yeah. of abusive of abusive domestic partnerships um but i don't think it's done well i don't think it gets that no. point home across no, well not. enough one thing i do think that they get across audrey's personal sense of self-worth mm. in that mm-hmm. she has so little self-esteem so little worth to her that she feels like she deserves this thing and I feel like that is one tactic that abusers utilize to Mm -hmm. keep their victims um, in that relationship is to get rid of their self-worth so they don't feel that they deserve any better and I think the musical portrays that really well but then also kind of offers up this that the solution to that <laughs> is find a nicer guy. Yeah. So, yeah. It's... Yeah. It's like the the moment that she is out of that abusive relationship, she is in another relationship mm-hmm. with Seymour. Um, which is not to say that that dynamic is a lot... is not a lot healthier, which it clearly is, because there's a lot more mutual respect there and yeah. um, a lot more care and consideration. But even still she hasn't found that sense of self-worth in herself without getting it from an externally validating source in Seymour. Yeah. I said something earlier that I just want to back up. Um, The fact that the majority of um, domestic violence victims are women, Mm -hmm. that is statistically true. (laughs) That is not a broad stroke. Um, Yeah, statistics are very clear on that point. Um, There is a lot of what about ism um that you'll hear from uh critics of feminism is putting it very nicely um <laughs> i'd say idiots um but yeah you'll hear a lot of people say oh but but men are um sometimes abused in domestic relationships as well which yes is true but also statistically um you will find that in the the vast majority of cases where um, a man in in a heterosexual partnership, mm-hmm. where a man is the victim of violence from his female domestic partner, that she was the original victim, and that she is um, then 
inflicting violence on him as a way to escape the violence that he is inflicting on her. Mm. That in the vast majority of cases, when men are um, the victims of domestic violence, they were the perpetrator first. So there's a there's a lot of nuance around that issue, especially around the oh, but men are the victim of domestic violence as well. Um, there's there's a layer and a consideration and a nuance that we don't hear in the rhetoric, and also the fact that we know that the vast majority of these victims are women and that it is a result of um, a culture of violence and it's a result mm-hmm. of rape culture and it's a result of patriarchy and toxic masculinity and that this trend is happening because of societal structures. Mm. So to then try and detract from it by saying, oh, but what about the men that are the victims of domestic violence? is just taking away from the actual issue that needs to be mm-hmm. addressed. So it's... Pointing out that there is another issue going on doesn't invalidate the issue that we're discussing. It's the all lives matter of domestic violence. And it's bullshit. Yeah. Um, And also, that being said, of course, there are abusive dynamics in um, non-heterosexual relationships as well, like in in queer couples. Yeah. But there hasn't been a lot of research done into that the majority of statistics about domestic violence are still about heterosexual partnerships which is um a shame because obviously it's a reality for um queer people in in queer relationships as well but um yeah research has been predominantly about heterosexual partnerships i did a really big um i did like my my final human rights assignment in law school on domestic violence, which is why I feel qualified <laughs> to say this. You've put the work in. You've done the research. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, this was not a cursory Google. Read a lot of peer-reviewed articles, everybody. <laughs> Although it turns out that for some people, a cursory Google is too much and <laughs> too much effort. Going back to the domestic violence thing, I think that it is touched on and I think it is more a narrative device than it is a comment on a serious issue. Yes. Um, like, I don't think it's handled poorly. Like, it's... it's. Uh, I, think, I think that it's handled in a neutral way. Like, it definitely doesn't glorify domestic violence. No. Which is good. Don't do that. Um, but I do think that its depiction is still flawed in the fact that it would suggest to you that it's people who are outwardly and obviously evil that commit acts of mm-hmm. domestic violence when, in actual fact, the opposite is true. One could argue, though, that while that is kind of like the surface-level reading of it, Little Shop of Horrors is kind of about how an ordinary person can be pushed to do insidious things. Mm, That is true, yeah. And so, like, the surface level is that Orin Evil, Seymour, good, but Seymour does try to kill him and then feeds him and then does maliciously, uh, to save his own skin, kill Kill Mushnik. And... Yeah, I don't like. I don't think Seymour is a turns out to be a heroic character, and I think that commentary is much subtler than anything else. Yeah, because everything else is very in your face. Yes, I think um, it's a little bit like Breaking Bad in that regard. Oh uh, yeah, how in, far will somebody go? Yeah, in that he starts out as this really unassuming, dorky, seemingly good mm-hmm. in inverted commas guy, and then he is driven to do terrible things. Yeah. And and is also willing to do those terrible yeah. things. I think that's, that's in his the own self interest. Yeah, yeah. And and that's definitely Seymour's 
journey as well. So yeah, like mixed mixed reviews for the <laughs> depiction of domestic violence. Yeah. Speaking of Seymour, I just want to do a little <laughs> public service announcement to any <laughs> casting directors out there. Mm. Um, don't cast conventionally attractive men as Seymour. Um, one, it's in the script that he's not supposed to look yeah. like a outwardly cute person. Still, that Seymour is a cutie. Well, if not, he's got inner beauty. It's in the text. It's in the text. Look um, to the text. <laughs> but I, I think it kind of like, yeah, it just defeats the purpose if Seymour is played by somebody who looks like Jonathan Groff, for example. A very handsome man. Very handsome man. Very talented. I'm sure his he just did uh, an off-Broadway version of Little Shop of Horrors. Um, and I'm sure he was phenomenal in the role oh, as a I performer. Oh, I fully believe it. But uh, he just, like... He's such, a, he's such a conventionally attractive leading man. Yeah. That this is a time for the awkward leading man to shine. And in fact, it's supposed to be. Because yeah. he is supposed to be somewhat forgotten by society or and, and like yeah, put no one down forgets upon. a face like Jonathan Gross. Exactly. So just public service announcement. Like cast more interesting <laughs> more yeah, more dynamic performers. Like George Salazar. Like George Salazar. Like Hunter Foster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just unusual kind of unusual picks. Rick Moranis. <laughs> Rick Moranis is kind of like for the time that the movie was made, is like the perfect encapsulation yeah. of who should have played Seymour. Yeah. And he does a phenomenal job. Yeah. And he's supposed to be that kind of awkward and gawky and not the leading man of a show. Yeah. But I think just in broader strokes, more people who are not conventionally attractive should mm. be playing leading roles in musicals and movies. Like, we should see people that don't fit the mould on our screens to normalise variety of human appearance exactly we we want to talk about the um representation of people of color in this musical mm. and i just want to preface it by saying that we uh, we have absolutely no qualifications no. um relevant to, life experience yeah <laughs> we we are not the perspectives who should have any final say on this but we thought that we would bring it up because we felt it did a dis- it would do a disservice to this discussion to not mention mm. it but in no way do we speak for uh for any community other than the the straight white middle class one we speak to our own lived experience yes but also i think that there are some things that we can say from a critical intersectional feminist perspective about the the representation of people of color in this show <laughs> So stereotypically, the way that this show is cast is that Seymour and Audrey are uh, are white, Orin are Caucasian. Well. Uh, Oren is usually Caucasian mm-hmm. also. Um, and the voice of the plant is usually portrayed by uh, a, a black person. Yeah. And the, um, the, the Greek chorus, if you would, um, mm-hmm. the Crystal Ronette and Chiffon... Um, uh, written for black women. Yes. Um, like just in the, um, like in in the vernacular that is used. Like it's the, um, the style of the music. Yeah, you you hear in the music. It's like this is a a black girl group from the sixties. Yeah, like and like 
like the Ronettes <laughs> and the Chiffons. Oh, I get it now. Yeah. Uh, and and so where it kind of becomes iffy mm. in the casting choices is uh, Audrey Two, the plant, uh, predominantly played by by a black performer, um, is a literal invader from outer space infiltrating this predominantly white area corrupting the good people mm. there and and forcing them to do increasingly bad terrible things yeah. and then taking over the world yeah i i am giving a lot of benefit of the doubt in saying that i do not believe this was an intention mm. an intentional thing but you can read into that that they cast a black voice to be the the sound of of that invasion i i definitely don't read that far into it um like i think there is merit to that perspective but i think it's i think you have to make a lot of assumptions to assume that that was the at least conscious choice like sure there are definitely going to be um racial biases that underpin that decision especially when your creative team's white yeah um but for me i think the issue is the fact that they're like okay we want somebody that sounds scary and um what's another word for scary what am i trying to say intimidating yeah we want a voice that sounds scary and intimidating and like bloodthirsty Mm. We're gonna cast a black man. That's yeah. that's the sound that we're gonna get from a black man's voice, and it's like, you know, a lot of a lot of media and a, like whether consciously or not does a lot to to paint black men, especially as as violent and um, dangerous. Yeah, yeah, and so um, I think that when you go, oh yes, the a black man's voice is is a villainous voice, especially when you don't actually see the actor playing or the actor voicing the plant like it's yeah. all puppetry like they're voicing them from off stage however i saw a version on the west end um in an outdoor theater where audrey too was played by a drag queen and <laughs> like the plant was just this really elaborate drag outfit and it was phenomenal oh that sounds so it cool. was so good like it's probably one of my theatrical highlights of things i've ever seen and I think that Little Shop is actually a good example of people have started to fight against traditional casting conventions. Mm. Like at the top of the show, we mentioned the production with George Salazar and MJ Rodriguez, um, where they were performing Seymour and Audrey. Yeah. Uh, which isn't that common, but has kind of started to be. And that's a particularly... Uh, poignant example because uh not only are they both people of color uh they're but both, he they're both uh well he's uh yes uh, but he's queer and she is trans mm. and so uh, i know that they said when they performed it on the late late show that they never dreamed that they would have the opportunity to perform a classic broadway love ballad mm. on international television yeah um, together and, yeah. and it, I think it's so wonderful that this show is taking uh, steps to make it a more diverse 
uh, the show is taking steps to have more diverse casting decisions mm. and take risks that deviate from the norm, which is why when a production with Jonathan Groff, which sounds very and traditional, Christian and Christian Borle. Don't get me wrong, love Christian Borle. Like, I love, love these John performers. McGraw. They're incredible, but we've seen that the, that version of the show before. Yeah. Did we really need to see another one? Yeah, especially when that was playing around the same time. Yeah. As one the... was off-Broadway and one was uh, Pasadena Playhouse, I think. Yeah. Um, also, just the version with MJ Rodriguez and George Salazar um, is in a different key from the original, and it means <laughs> that the Seymour part is so high. <laughs> and the first time I ever heard George Salazar sing, I was like, what? Mm. How dare you? <laughs> Have such range, sir. It's it's such a beautiful version. Pause this again. Go listen to it again <laughs> and come back to hear our conclusion. Or if you didn't listen to it when we first said it, we know. <laughs> Go do it now. It's very good. Come on, Adrian. Do it. It's a random name to pick. It's going to freak out if there are any Adrians. <laughs> it's going to freak them out. I really hope. Like, if you're an Adrian that got terrified by that, please let us know. <laughs> Because that's very funny. Um, additionally, when it comes to um, the representation of people of colour and the roles that have that were specifically written to be played by people of colour mm-hmm. and have traditionally been played by them, um, when you look at the, the Greek chorus, like the three yeah. uh, women that kind of narrate the show in three-part harmony, <laughs> I think that the critique that you can give to their role in the show is that um, they are three women of colour who are there specifically to narrate and further the plot for the white protagonists. Yeah. Like, their their role is to serve the character development of the white people. Typ- typically, the, typically. The characters, the, the Audreys and the Seymours, who traditionally have traditionally cast, been yeah. played by... People like Kerry Butler and Hunter mm-hmm. Foster. I love Kerry Butler. Yeah. As a side note, <laughs> um, like wonderful performers. I'm just, I just want to see more interesting. Yeah, exactly. Choices. We've seen it. Yeah. We've seen it. Let's. If we're going to retell this story, let's it. retell it with a a, a different. Perspective. Yes. Cast yeah. a Latina trans Audrey. Yes. Cast oh. a drag queen as your Audrey too. The plant, <laughs> because God, it's good. Uh, Amber Riley was also the plant in the George Salazar, uh, MJ Rodriguez production. So, yeah, like... Oh, Amber Riley. Female Audrey Twos. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, In the version that I musically directed, a um, a woman... Well, she was a child at the time. She's an adult now. But um, a girl named Zoe Mm -hmm. um, voiced the plant, who's like this incredible alto, um, like did this amazing character voice... She's tiny. <laughs> and it was incredible because she like came out at the very end to take the curtain call and everyone was like, no, that's not no who way. did that voice. <laughs> so yeah, female Audrey twos. Yeah. Can be very fun. So behind it. Yeah. Also, um, just throwing out other great productions of the show, there was the Australian version recently um, starring your friend, Brent Hill, yep. uh, who you did School of Rock with. Um but I'm, I'm like, name-dropping on your behalf. <laughs> um, Thank you. But in this production, he voiced both Seymour and the plant. Yeah. And it was freaking phenomenal. Uh, if you haven't seen it, there is a version, uh, there is a clip of him performing Feed Me 
uh, on YouTube. Sick. And you can watch him voice both the characters yeah. at the same time. It's quite incredible. Because I literally wouldn't have known had I not been told. Mm. Someone's like, the guy that's playing Seymour, he's also voicing the part. And I wouldn't have noticed unless I watched him and actually noticed that his mouth was moving, even though he was still in character physically as Seymour. Oh, it really messed with my brain. Yeah, it's... it's but it was so good. Yeah. But I think this show has been done so many times and it's so beloved and the score is just... Uh, the score is So great. good. So good. Um, that people want to keep seeing it, but let's keep coming up with fresh and new and interesting and dynamic ways of mm-hmm. presenting it rather than just doing the cookie cutter version again. Exactly. Yeah. And There's so much room for interpretation. Like, you're literally telling a story about a freaking man-eating alien plant. <laughs> like, there is no one right way to do that. Exactly. And I think the reason that this story, uh, this show gets put on a lot is because it's really good. Yeah. Like, at, at the end of the day, we have a bunch of criticisms, but it is a very clearly told story with some phenomenal music in it. Oh, yeah. All of your performers get to show off in one way or another. It's really funny. It's quite poignant in the moments where it's poignant. And it's it's an interesting story. Yeah. Like, how far will Seymour go to get what he he really wants? But also, just like, how many other storylines can you summarize by, oh, yeah, so there's this man-eating plant that comes from outer space and then a florist <laughs> finds it and then feeds people to it. Yeah. For world domination. Yeah. Oh, and the puppetry. <laughs> like, particularly in the film. Uh, if you haven't seen the film, go watch it. For the, like, It's worth it for the puppet alone. It's it's incredible. It's beautiful. Um, <sighs> Ellis, I know the answer to this question because we talked about it before, uh, but I'm going to ask it as a segue. <laughs> Does Little Shop of Horrors pass the Bechdel test? It does not. Any conversation that our named female characters have is about Audrey's abusive relationship or her perspective not abusive relationship with Seymour. And when the Greek chorus are singing with one another, they're narrating Seymour's life. Yeah. Mim, do we rate or ruin Little Shop of Horrors? From a feminist perspective, I think we have to ruin it. I, like, I, I don't agree. think I don't think it completely bombs, but th- it's definitely on the like the lower end of the spectrum. Yeah, if it if it passes, it's like just scrapes yeah. over the line. No, nah, but I I think the fact that um, Audrey is such a stereotypical and despite the fact that she's a leading woman, still quite two dimensional character and yeah. kind of plays into um, some damaging stereotypes about women that aren't then debunked. The yeah. fact that the other female characters are literally there to prop up the storyline of mm-hmm. the male lead. The fact that <laughs> like I don't think that domestic violence is handled particularly well. No. I if, if you took somewhere that's green out of context, mm. I would rate that. Mm. But that's Sur- my audition song. Surrounded with everything. I mean, it's a great audition song. That and out tonight from Rent, which I know you hate. I disapprove of that so much. <laughs> it's so good. Um, um, but but yeah, I think I think out of context, somewhere that screen does get a tick. In amongst everything else, it's yeah. like the the thing that would drag it over the line yeah. if it got over the line. But at I don't all. think it's enough. No. Yeah. But 
Love this show. Love this show. Love this. And the movie Could is delightful. Could do better for women. And I think that you do do better for women if you cast more diverse women and women in typically male roles and mm-hmm. you you start playing with it and reimagine it. I yeah. think you can, in the presentation of it. We didn't talk about queer representation because there is none. Um, everyone, mm-hmm. as far as we know in this storyline, is heterosexual and cis. But when you start casting queer performers, then it's more about mm-hmm. their representation, um, the representation of, of the actors themselves, not their storylines necessarily. But just yeah. normalising seeing... Um, queer and gender diverse performers in beloved musicals. In in these very traditional heterosexual heteronormative roles as yeah. well is just subvert the expectations. <laughs> I I don't know about you, but I'm going to go and watch MJ Rodriguez and George Salazar <laughs> again because I can't get enough of it. I'm going to do so that, beautiful. and then I'm going to go watch Brent Hill be both Seymour and Audrey too simultaneously. Yeah. And if you've done all of your little shop homework, you can then follow us on Facebook. <laughs> uh, Good segue. We else. are thank you. Uh, we are Feminism Ruins Everything Dash It's a Feminist Podcast on Facebook. You can also follow us on Instagram, uh, which is at Feminism Ruins Everything Pod. Or if you like the work that we do and would like to support us financially we have a patreon we do it's uh, a really lovely wholesome little community and we'll share you know you'll get uh, access to the cover art early or uh, you'll have like bloopers we sometimes so do many bloopers. <laughs> so many bloopers we put up little extra things fun uh, discussions fun discussions that we, have. that we have so it's really nice um and that's patreon.com slash feminism feminism ruins everything pod feminism Feminism ruins everything. Feminism, <laughs> feminism ruins everything. I'm sorry, Cam, that we got our theme song stuck in your head. Feminism, feminism ruins everything. Whoa, 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 whoa. Bye, everyone. Bye. See ya. Feminism ruins everything. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.